Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And today I am joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Just another day in paradise talking about law. And also joining the podcast today is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Glad to be here. So we are back after a little bit of a break. We've had sporadic scheduling this summer, but we've got an exciting podcast for you guys today. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss last week's ruling that prohibits Georgia from using their current voting machines past the 2019 municipal elections. The state was already in the process of replacing these machines. You know, we talked about the legislation they adopted in the 2019 legislative session, but a new court ruling gives them a hard deadline on that. Then I sit down with Danny Canzo. He's a tax and budget policy analyst at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. And we discussed 2017's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. These were the Trump tax cuts passed at the end of 2017. And we're going to talk about that law's impact on taxing and spending decisions that the state will be making in the 2020 legislative session. We've already got some news related to that in the summer of 2019. And then finally this week, Wes Wolf from the Brunswick News joins the podcast to discuss concerns from environmentalists over a Georgia power plan to close coal ash ponds around the state as the utility moves further away from coal-fired power plants. So a little bit of environmental issues to round out the show today. Uh, But let's go ahead and dive in here on the first topic. So last week, federal judge Amy Totenberg prohibited Georgia from using the state's current DRE voting machines beyond the 2019 municipal elections, calling the machines antiquated, seriously flawed, and vulnerable to failure, breach, contamination, and attack. All very bad things. Totenberg also required the state to have a contingency plan in place to use paper ballots in the 2020 presidential primary if the state is not ready to roll out the new voting machines authorized by the legislature this year. The state faces a tight timeline for getting those machines online, though. So let's start with this ruling, Luke. What did, aside from just the headline that she prohibited the use of the machines, what did Amy Totenberg, what did Judge Amy Totenberg rule in the case on the old DRE voting machines? So to like keep this quick and simple, because it is complicated, she ruled that this system is pretty awful and that we should not be using it and that we shouldn't have been using it for a long time uh, and that we're not going to be able to use it anymore after the 2019 elections. This is a unique factual circumstance, and I think that makes this order so complicated. The The reason that the state is allowed to use the old system in 2019 is only because of the fact that last session... Uh, we you know passed a bill in the state that is implementing a new system that has the goal of being uh, in place by March of 2020 when we're having the presidential preference primary. And the real reason I think she's allowing the DRE machines to be used in the 2019 election is not because she considers them to be a good thing or that the problem isn't as dire as the plaintiffs say. It's more of that she is worried that the state would be incapable of doing this like one-off election using paper ballots, which is what the plaintiffs would like the state of Georgia to do, and also successfully implement the new system by March of 2020. So, and, you know, I don't. This is a place where I think we could take a cheap shot and say that she's saying that the state is too incompetent to do this all at once. But I think, being honest, Georgia has 159 counties. It would be pretty difficult to do one election using paper ballots, which is a completely different system that we haven't used for a really, really long time, and then expect, you know, from November 2019 to March 2020 to using entirely new systems. So have effectively two new systems in, like, less than a 12-month period. That seems really harsh. So... This is not really in any way, shape, or form a, you know, good ruling for the state. This is a strict, you know, very strict, very harsh condemnation of their conduct and the way that the current system works. Well, and just to add on to that, 
it would be really hard for voters, not just the state, but for voters to all of a sudden walk into their polling place and have to accommodate for these new paper ballots. And then the next time they go in, have to change it again. People already complain about the voting process and it being inconsistent. And that's just that would just make it worse. Megan, what were some of the technical problems with these voting machines? They've been much maligned, but I think somewhat lost in these the details are, are what the actual technical issues are with the old machines. So the biggest issue with the machines is that they were hackable. Um, it was very easy for someone to gain access to a port on the machine, you know, for example, a USB port or something like that, um, and install a piece of malware on it that could then be passed from machine to machine with those little cards that we use as voters to insert and actually record our vote. And then we hand them back in and then they're reused later. A patch was actually issued to resolve this issue and the state of Georgia did not install it, which for all you guys out there that are wondering if I should, you know, skip updating my Windows machine or whatever, always do the updates. Always do the updates. Sometimes the updates do cause more problems. Fine. That does happen. But always do the updates because the updates are intended to solve a specific issue. And that's what happened here. I'm not sure if the state of Georgia didn't install it because they thought it would be cumbersome or they thought they heard that maybe it was going to cause other issues or whatever. I don't know. I don't have visibility into that. But you should always install a patch when it is sent out. Megan, are you saying I should not be on Windows XP anymore? Yes, I'm saying you should not be on Windows XP. Luke, please tell me you're not on Windows XP. (laughs) No, I'm on Windows 10. Okay, okay, thank you. Well, and that patch, isn't this right, Megan? That patch was like after a report in like 2006. This is an issue that that goes back a lot longer than just the 2018 elections. Yes, it was an old patch. Quite frankly, these machines are very old. They are old technology, which is concerning in and of itself um, because there's always a worry that they have not been, had the patches kept up, but this patch should have been installed forever ago. Yeah, to my knowledge from reading the order, I believe it was saying that the machines hadn't really been updated since like 2005, which is kind of crazy. Which is a problem. It is 2019, 14 years. That's a long time. Yeah, some of the other issues that uh, came out in this ruling were voters describing, um, and this is from some reporting on the ruling, voters describing self-casting ballots, malfunctioning voting machines, and voter selections being flipped from one candidate to another. And this is on top of other computer problems that were had at some precincts during the 2018 elections where the Uh, computers used to check voters in and and match them against their voter registration files, that those were not working correctly. And those led to long lines and in a precinct in uh, Gwinnett County being held open uh, over two hours after it was scheduled to close because of delays. Um, Luke, what are some of the actual legal issues at play? You know, when we talk about court cases, usually we're talking about Supreme Court cases, and, and we get into this like theory of constitutional law. But this, I think, is a, is a little more cut and dry. You can correct me if I'm wrong. What are some of the actual legal issues at play in this ruling? I, I would say you're half right, Kyle. There are actually like quite a bit of Supreme Court type issues that you you know you would see. And okay, so effectively, this is an equal protection clause case of you know, from the Fourteenth Amendment, and uh, there's a long, long line of cases that says, and, you know, to quote, just as the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment prohibits state officials from improperly diluting the right to vote, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment forbids state officials from unlawfully eliminating that fundamental right. So basically, what that is saying in this specific case, I would go on to talk about how, and this is where they cite Bush versus Gore like I thought they would, uh, it says, it is well established that when a state order arbitrarily and distri- treatment of voters, those votes are deprived of their constitutional right to due process and equal protection. So that is like what everything is rooting in this case, is the fact that due to the problems we've been discussing with the machines, but also problems like the fact that when people, either due to their own error and not registering properly, or what the case is really concerned about, the improper not malfeasance, but incompetence of the system 
causes someone to not be on the rolls when they're supposed to be on the voter rolls and they show up to a place and they're not on the rolls, they're supposed to be made aware of the fact that they can do a provisional ballot and stuff like that has not been happening. So long story short, taking constitutional law out of it and just thinking in common sense. What's been happening is due to uh, some policies that were deliberate by the Kemp administration while he was Secretary of State, but also just, you know, technological problems of them not being up on up to date on the technology. Many people who were supposed to be able to vote were not able to vote. And a lot of this was very arbitrary and disparate. Thanks, Luke. So, Megan, these issues that the judge highlights in her ruling, they go beyond just the machines that were being used, the platform on which the election was taking place. It goes into other issues related to the state's, the the totality of the state's administration of elections. And one that particularly stood out to me was this claim by the state uh, that they were using proper security procedures when they were, quote, air-gapping computers from the voting machines. Can you describe what air-gapping is and why that uh, is not proper security procedure? Sure. So air-gapping is essentially isolating a computer from the network. Um, so in this case, the way they air-gapped the machine or the what they were doing was air-gapping the results. Um, are the ballots. So they were, they had a machine that was off on its own, not on a network, and then they would take data via a lockable USB drive, and they would bring it over to that machine and add it to that machine. The problem with air gapping, though, is that the gap is only good, the gap is only as good as how data is introduced. So it's been proven in a couple of different cases that it's really easy to install malware on that lockable USB drive. And unless you're doing very robust scans on it every time you use it to port data over, you could be introducing malware along with the data that you need. Um, another issue is that the ballots were created on an internet-facing machine, which means that the ballots themselves could be compromised. So it's really difficult to truly air gap a machine and to air gap it correctly. And then saying, Oh, well we air gapped it. It should be fine. Is not a sufficient defense. Yeah. And her, her ruling also addresses the issue folks may remember about a a data breach at Kennesaw state university, um, that an election center there at KSU was hosting elections data and that data was available somehow. I can't remember exactly how, but that officials had told the court that the the servers where this data was on, um, the servers that housed this data, they were wiped because they were simply repurposed and that data on those servers was not intentionally destroyed. This was a claim by Georgia elections officials. I, I think these were the officials from the KSU election center. And Totenberg called the, those claims flatly not credible which is that, kind of yes. unbelievable. Right. Well, so that's also correct. Um, I believe if 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 I'm not getting this mixed up with another issue, um, there were... There's a lot to keep up with. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were databases on those servers that were just available. If you could get on those servers, you could get on those databases. And so the, the databases themselves, the servers themselves, were just not secured properly using proper... Um, you know, data security protocol. So there's a there's a whole mess of problems that we've described with the old system so far. But I think the state would argue that all of those issues are relatively moot, because the state is adopting an, an entirely new system of voting. The legislature instructed the Secretary of State to acquire a new system during the last legislative session. The Secretary of State recently announced that they had secured a contract with a new vendor. The vendor is different than the vendor that was being used for the old system. It was also different from a vendor that was getting a lot of criticism for having close ties to the Kemp administration. But Luke, Judge Schuttenberg mentions in her ruling the the prospect of this coming new system. What is her view of the timeline of implementing that new system? And are there any additional legal challenges that the new system might face in court? Yeah, so she is very skeptical of the timeline for implementation that the the Kemp administration and the Secretary of State have uh, set up. 
uh, and are claiming that they're going to be able to do. They're saying that they're going to have this new system completely online by March of 2020. The issue with that is they have failed to meet a lot of deadlines that they have set for themselves. And additionally, they haven't really met the same uh, goals either. Because, for example, uh, the state was claiming that in 2019 that they would have 10 counties using the new system and testing it out and, you know, just seeing how it goes. And in actuality, now they're saying they're going to have six. So that is one of the reasons why... Judge Tonberg is not going with the Hamark paper ballots in 2019. Is that uh, to you know to put it one way, the state needs all the help it can get to actually hit the March 2020 deadline, and that is the system that Georgia is probably going to be using going into the future. And so they need to get that online as quick as possible. Uh, she's concerned that the state will not be able to do that. So what this ruling also says is that the state not only cannot use the DRE machine system in 2020, they also have to come up with a alternative to the DRE machines for the March 2020 presidential primary and forward if they're unable to get the new system online. So that's, and, that's thing one. That's and that's a paper problems. And that's a paper ballot system that has to be the contingency, correct? Yeah. So... The system itself. I'm just going to read from her order because I think this is like the easiest way to understand this because this, this, in my mind, was actually pretty clear. So, quoting her order, The long and twisting saga of Georgia's non-audible DRE slash GEMS voguing system running on software of almost two decades vintage well, with well-known flaws and vulnerabilities and limited cybersecurity is finally heading towards conclusion. The new Georgia electronic BMD voter system legislation adopted in 2019 was accompanied by a major funding appropriation. The legislation is an essential step forward out of the quagmire, even if it's just to terminate use of an antiquated vulnerable voting system with funding for a replacement voting system and the initiation of some measures of future ballot audit protocols. The wisdom or legal conformity of the Secretary of State's selection of a new vendor's particular ballot system, though, is not the question now before the court. So the new system basically is not really considered in this order. Uh, It's just, you know, there's enough known about the new system that basically any version of it is probably better than what we have right now. Uh, But there's not enough to definitively say it doesn't have all of these problems. And there's not enough to definitively say that it solves all these problems. So the new system is already being challenged as well in an amended order by the plaintiffs. But for right now, there's nothing in this order that would suggest that the new system is not going to be implemented. Right. Well, I... I think that they're I I don't think that she is fully sold on this system. I mean she she quotes Yogi Berra. She says hopefully it's not déjà vu all over again. Um and and sort of I think shows an understanding that there will be a challenge to those to the new system and and what voting rights and what paper ballot advocates will say about the new system is that the security protocols are not much improved from the old system to the new system, primarily because the new system will print out it. You'll, you'll vote on a machine and it'll print out your choices and your choices will be on paper in text, but then your choices will be read by a feeder that will read a QR code on the printed ballot. It will not actually read the text of your choices from the printed paper ballot that you get from the voting machine. And their concern is that, number one, voters will not necessarily check the printed ballot to make sure that it matches the choices that they input onto the machine. But number two, that if a machine was compromised for some reason, that the choice reflected on the text may not actually match the choice the voter made uh, in the QR code that is scanned. And so that there that that those things may not may not exactly match up and that and that brings some doubt in. I think that that is 
meaningfully different than the old system where there was no paper ballot backup at all. And when you did some sort of an audit or a recount, the machines would just spit out the same numbers that they did before. And so you had to find some other evidence of some kind of breach or manipulation. And the state maintains that there is no evidence of that, despite all of the vulnerabilities that have been laid out in this case. Yeah, well, I, I think this would be a good moment to mention, you know, what she says right after the paragraph I read was that the defendants have previously minimized, erased, or dodged the issues underlying this case. Thus, the court has made sure that the past is recounted frankly in this order to ensure transparency for the future. So I, I suspect, and this again, this is pure speculation, the state has an opportunity here to put all these problems behind them. Uh, but they would have to start acting in a completely different way than they have previously asked, uh, acted, and they would have to implement some pretty hardcore auditing procedures to make it clear that, you know, the issues you just talked about, like the QR codes not matching up with what the paper ballots say, uh, you know, they're going to have to have some really good procedures to make sure they're doing some randomly selected tests to make sure that, you know, the paper is matching up with what they're getting on the electronic copies and stuff like that. Or I would not be surprised if we're, you know, it's deja vu all over again, <laughs> as she says in the case. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I feel like this system is a lot m- more potentially defendable than the old one. That, that is my starting point and framing point. So with this system, had the state basically just readopted it, but updated things, I think no questions asked that system would be thrown out but the the newer system has potentially enough defensibility that it might not get thrown out is how i feel right now yeah i agree with that i think it is definitely more defensible but that said you know like you guys were talking about with the potential flaw to the qr codes and not being able to have good visibility into if slash when that is compromised or just has a glitch in any way. Um, it's not the ideal solution. Um, I know I've kind of railed against paper ballots in general, and that is because it, if they're introduced by themselves, they actually can introduce quite a number of problems because there's a reason that we went away from paper ballots with issues with them being marked or being lost or being stolen and you know just tons of other things that can happen with paper-only ballots. So combining them with technology is ideal. I think this Ars Technica article that came out um, within the past couple of days um, has really kind of hit the nail on the head as far as what we need. It says... As a result of these arguments, most computer scientists favor voting via hand-marked paper ballot. They believe that computerized op- optical scanners are a reasonable way to speed up the vote counting process, provided that a state also provides for routine post-election audits that hand count a random sample of ballots to verify the accuracy of the machine count. So that said, that is what I would prefer to see. I'd prefer, you know, back in the days of college and high school when we had Scantrons, um, you know, if we are going to have a hand marked process or if we're going to have a ballot marking device that is technical, um, I'd prefer to print it out, you know, maybe in bubbled in fashion that can both be human read and then scanned by an optical scanner and fed in that way for easier auditing purposes, as well as, you know, using technology for for what it's meant for, which is to make our lives easier and to speed things up. That balance is what we need to strike, and I don't think that Georgia's current resolution really truly strikes that balance, but it is certainly better than what we have had. Uh, with that, though, I think we're going to turn it over to my discussion with Danny Canzo from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute about tax and budget issues coming up in the 2020 legislative session. Here I am with Danny. All right. So on this segment, we are talking about how some federal tax legislation from 2017 and a new call from Governor Kemp for the state to cut its budget is impacting the budgeting process this summer. And as we head head towards legislative session in January of 2020. And to do that, I'm joined by Danny Canto, the tax and fiscal policy analyst at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Danny. Thanks, Kyle. I'm excited to be with y'all. 
So the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, that was federal legislation that was passed under the previous Congress at the end of 2017. But you guys have a new report out that looks at this legislation. Um, so can you give us a little back, a little bit of background about what the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is and what it has to do with Georgia's taxes and budget? Absolutely, Kyle. So I'm very excited about a new report that we just released that's, you know, a, a really comprehensive 31-page look at, at some of the biggest changes that have been made to the federal and state tax code in, in decades, really. And so, you know, we were able to partner with the Institute on Taxation um, and Economic Policy, ITEF, and Step Up Savannah, which is a local organization in Georgia to also do a case study on the city of Savannah to look at how the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was federal legislation that was passed in 2017, and the state's response, which was passed very quickly after the TCJA because of how closely the state of Georgia aligns our tax code with the federal income tax, and to look at how that, how that will affect taxpayers from 2020 to 2025 when most of those provisions expire. Uh, so what we found is that between 2020 and 2025, $43 billion of tax cuts are going to flow into the state uh, and, and reduce the federal liability of Georgians, households, what are called pass-through businesses, uh, which are basically you know, your, your traditional small business where the owner uh, passes through the tax liability to their, their personal income tax and corporations. Uh, and, and so $43 billion uh, with about $8 billion per year um, of federal tax savings. And, and 75% of that is going to go to those who earn over $108,000. And so unfortunately, we also found that the first 60% of Georgians are going to receive about 12% um, of that $43 billion in savings. Um, and so we also looked at the state's response, and Georgia is, is very unique in how we structure our state's tax code. So first of all, every year the state passes conformity legislation. And what that does is it aligns about 95% of the itemized tax breaks that we offer with those that exist at the federal level. So when, when you're calculating your income taxes, it's more than just the rate that you pay. You get to a number of income that that rate is applied to. So the way that you do that is in, in Georgia, every taxpayer gets a personal exemption. Individuals can qualify for a personal exemption of, of $2,700 and, and married filers uh, can qualify for a personal exemption of $7,400. Uh, with $3,000 for every dependent. So every taxpayer gets that deducted from their income. And then you choose between they're taking the standard deduction, which is a, a flat amount or itemizing. And so Georgia is unique in that we require taxpayers to make the same choice that they do on their federal return, on their state return as well. And we also allow state taxpayers to deduct state and local taxes from the amount of income tax that they have. So that makes us basically the most vulnerable state in the nation to these very significant federal reforms that took effect in 2018. Um, and those have basically restructured the state's income tax um, because the federal reforms significantly raised the standard deduction. Um, and, and so as a result of that, 86% of Georgians are going to take the standard deduction going forward. So because of that and also some of the caps on itemized income tax breaks were in the federal reform that allowed uh, the federal government to lower income tax rates, the state of Georgia would have received you know, what was reported as a windfall of, of $1.1 billion in, in increased state revenues. And so the state basically acted in two parts. First part, uh, adopted all of those federal changes to itemized deductions, doubled the state standard deduction, which ate away about $515 million 
of that $1.1 billion, and then lower the top income tax rate for both households and corporations from 6% to 5.75%. And that ate away, you know, another $450 million of that $1.1 billion. So that that was passed in, in the 2018 legislative session. Concurrently, Governor Deal also raised the revenue estimate midway through the session, uh, if you'll remember, to, to fully fund QBE. And so that basically was the full share of, of the revenue um, increase that the state received. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the legislation also created a trigger um, meant to take effect if, if for some reason state revenues, you know, vastly outpaced uh, what, what we were estimating um, based off of implementing some of these very new provisions uh, in, in both the personal and corporate income tax. Um, and, and so that would further reduce the top income tax rate for households and corporations to 5.5%. And so what we were also able to estimate this report is that over a full year, that would cost $550 million to the state, uh, which is 2% of the entire state budget or about the, the, the same amount that it cost to fund the $3,000 pay raise um, in, in the 2020 budget, which is obviously a very significant amount of money. So that that's a lot, but that's kind of a overview of, you know, sort of both the federal and the state reforms. Uh, but this is really, you know, the, the one of the biggest and, and most substantive changes um, that we've seen at both the federal and state level. So we can dive into some of these uh, specific areas. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about this two-step income tax reduction that the state legislation sets up. So you, your paper describes this, but for our listeners, the the conforming legislation um, that the that the state passed it reduced the top income tax in two steps, and the second step, if it happens, is scheduled to take place. Um, in the 2020 legislative session, the legislature would adopt a joint resolution to reduce the state's top income tax rate from 5.5 from 5.75 percent to 5.5 percent. And one of the things that your paper does, Danny, is it it looks at the distributional impact of how the tax cut benefit is distributed by uh, income group uh, across people by income group. So can you talk about how the second step down in the tax rate if it's adopted in 2020 how that is estimated to be distributed by income group absolutely so you know to 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 be clear about this the the first phase uh, that that's already gone into effect has already reduced the income tax rate the top income tax tax rate for both households and corporations to 5.75% and so what what we find about the first phase that's gone in which is you know about a billion dollars in, in offsetting tax cuts, is that a majority of Georgians did receive a modest tax cut because of what the state did on the standard deduction and, and it, it, in, in the first part of, of, of the legislative actions that have already gone into effect. So when we look at the second rate cut, we found that over a full year, it will cost $550 million to implement and 75% of that $550 million will go to the state's top 20% of earners. So basically, our in, in a given year, about 5 million households and businesses file tax returns. So 20% of those earners are, have incomes above $100,000. So 75% of that $550 million loss to the state is going to go to those those very highest earners and for for most people because of what we spoke about earlier where you know the the amount of income that's actually applied to the 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 top tax rate is is lower than than what folks are are actually taking home um and and so that's why most taxpayers would would see a really minor change and so we break it out into about a million filers in, in each category, in each 20%. Um, and, and we find that mo- most people are going to get what, what a model wouldn't even statistically notice, um, you know, really is a tax change. And so, you know, you're, you're, a majority of Georgians are going to get less than about $5 per month 
um, in, in income tax savings if this tax cut were, were to take effect. But we do have a, a fairly large group of people in Georgia who earn over $100,000 and in our top 1% of earners who earn over $500,000. Um, and, and so those folks would get you know, a, a larger tax cut with that, that top 1% people getting almost $2,800 over a year. And for them, you know, that would be 0.2% of their income, um, but it would be a fairly large cost to the state, which again would amount to $550 million. And so, you know, I'm sure as, as a lot of your listeners know, this conversation is, is happening um, alongside the governor's directive for agencies to reduce their budgets by 4% for the amended 2020 budget and by 6% for the fiscal year 2021 budget, um, which, which would obviously total 10% over one and a half um, years of, of cuts to agencies. And so, you know, the, the state is considering that at the same time that uh, lawmakers will be weighing whether it's worth also additionally having to find $550 million in savings um, when most taxpayers really would not see much of a difference. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, the announcement from the governor that he's seeking this 4% cut in 2020 and a 6% budget cut in 2021. I know, and we talked a little bit about this beforehand, that we don't have tons of details on what these cuts mean. But when you look at a 10% total cut in the state budget, what does that mean generally just in terms of delivery of services or other important responsibilities of the state to potentially absorb a cut of, of 10% as the governor's proposed? Well, so I, I mean, I think that this is really important because the state of Georgia ranks last in the nation in the growth of spending since the recession. And by, by most measures, we're the only state that spends less per person than we did before the recession hit. And so it, we, we were just talking about our, our state tax liability the state also ranks 48th in America in state taxes. And so, you know, we, we, have not, we have grown at really the most conservative rate in America budget-wise. Um, and, and we have a lot of needs in, in the state. And so a, a 10% cut, to give you context, is, is the first cut that, that agencies have been asked to prepare since the recession. And so... The state was already scheduled to grow at a 3.2% rate, which would, again, be the lowest rate since the recession. So we're combining all of these, you know, to, to try to basically set new records um, in, in how little that, that we can spend. And, and, you know, to echo the speaker, that is going to force some very critical agencies to to choose between cuts to personnel or, or cuts to services, you know, the, the state already um, is, is facing some pretty significant pressure on, on revenue collections as we've gone through some pretty significant transformations because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and, and what that's done to restructure how we collect income taxes. Um, the revenue estimate for, for last year came for for personal income taxes fell 130 million dollars short of the 12.3 billion dollars that that the governor's budget estimated we would collect um, and so to be talking about reducing um, agency budgets by by 10 percent could be some some very very significant cuts um, and and you know the the structure of Georgia's budget out of the $27.5 billion that the state will spend in 2020, 70% of that goes to healthcare and education. And so it's, it's really difficult to both cut the budget and find net savings and also talk about healthcare waivers and additional teacher pay raises, um, let alone the, the $3,000 that's already been budgeted for um, that'll cost the state at least $530 million over the 2020 fiscal year. Yeah, so let's get a little bit beyond numbers here. I for our listeners, you know, we're talking about 
tax cuts and and budget figures together because in Georgia we have a a, a balanced budget requirement, which means these two things are are necessarily linked. Um, but when we talk generally about Georgia's budget, can you just describe some of the core functions of Georgia's state budget? So when Georgians are paying these state taxes, what does their revenue go towards in terms of services that the state is providing back to Georgia citizens? Well, the the majority of, of the budget goes to K-12 and higher education. Um, and higher education is also the lion's share of, of agency funds, um, which which are going to be asked to make the deepest cuts. Uh, but but the state of Georgia has 1.75 million children in public schools. That you know we we added over 700 million dollars in in K through 12 education spending um, o- over the last year, and and so that is definitely where the lion's share of, of funding exists. We also have over 2 million Georgians who rely on Medicaid while having one of the highest uninsured rates in the nation. And so that, that's an area where it's, it's almost impossible to, to actually cut funding. And, and so that's why, you know, when, when we talk about the, the cuts that have been ordered, you know, un, until we see the governor's specific budget for 2019 and 2020, you know, we, we won't know exactly where and, and how the, the cuts are going to be made. So healthcare it is, is the next significant share. Um, after that, you know, comes higher education and, and then public safety and, and corrections. And then, you know, what, what we use to make bond payments. And so the state of Georgia has, as, as anyone will tell you, a very, very lean budget. And, and so you know, there, there's a reason that we're the only state in America that spends less than we did before the recession hit. Uh, but, you know, that also has some consequences and in, in, in part of um, why we rank number one in, in things like maternal mortality. You know, why why we do have 660,000 Georgians that, that could qualify under a 138 percent Medicaid match. So, you know, the, the state, I mean, don't get me wrong, we're, we're spending pretty conservatively. And, and, and most of that, you know, we can go into to healthcare and education. But if, if you don't want to cut, make cuts there um, and you don't want to make cuts in, in things like public safety, you know, troopers received a, a pretty large pay raise in the last administration. Um, that, that's about 4% of the state budget. That's an area that, that had been cut pretty substantially. And that's why a lot of our officers um, had had you know one of the lowest salary rates in the nation. The Department of, of Natural Resources had had some really really deep cuts. So you know think things like parks and and we we've recently had a conversation in the legislature about Pittman Robinson funds and and raising those and and hunting. Um, and so when when a lot of these cuts are made at the agency level, um, you know and and you know obviously the lion's share would be to higher education. Uh, those are just passed on to Georgians through, you know, tuition increases or fee increases um, or things like that. Or, you know, if, if the state really has to make deep cuts and, and doesn't exempt some of those most valuable agencies where the, the state obviously um, spends the most money in, in education and healthcare, then, you know, you'll, you'll have to see consequences with, with less funding um, in, in some of those top priorities. And so that, that, that's part of why um, when, when most Georgians would only gain a few dollars a month from reducing the income tax from 5.75 to 5.5%, um, you know, which is just an arbitrary number that a piece of legislation included as a trigger to give members the option to vote on, um, which they, if, if you think about it, have always had and will always have, you know, it, it, it's more valuable to most people to have that $550 million um, as part of the budget. So given the distributional impact that we discussed earlier, the fact that uh, the, the second step down in the income tax rate is not super valuable for people with lower and moderate incomes, um, if Georgia policymakers wanted to deliver a more targeted tax benefit to Georgia taxpayers with lower incomes, is there a tool at their disposal to do that? Absolutely. So this this is an issue that that 
we've been advocating for for a long time here at, at, at GBPI and, and 29 states across the nation have adopted what's called an earned income tax credit. And that's modeled after a federal credit that exists and has since 1974. Um, and so basically, research across the nation has concluded that the EITC is one of the most powerful anti-poverty tools ever created and the most powerful tool within the tax code that can lift people out of poverty. And basically the way that it works is by rewarding people who work a certain amount of hours up to about $55,000 in annual income um, adjusted for the size of their family. So most dollar about you know over ninety percent of of the dollars from the EITC federally go to families. And right now in Georgia, over one point one million people are benefiting from the federal EITC. So you know that is unique in that we can look at the effects that those people are receiving, and we can see through the data how many of those people are being pulled out of poverty. That it's leading to people moving into the middle class, and that it's just been a very, very effective use of dollars. So what, what we looked at is if the state of Georgia were to create a really modest $130 million non-refundable credit valued at 10% of what the federal government offers. So it would be about 500 up to a $500 tax cut for lower and middle income people, um, again, targeted around families and work. And so what we found is that 100% of, of that $130 million would go to people under $55,000 and that it would really effectively target people working in the middle class and that over 700,000 families should have their taxes cut with that tool. And so we compared that to the rate cut that's pending. And so you know, one, one thing that's really important to, to talk about is when we look at the federal TCJA, the bottom 60% of people are only going to get 12% of that $43 billion in tax cuts through 2025. So that huge amount of tax cuts that, that's coming in is really not going to benefit any, but, you know, I mean, to a significant degree, the people in the middle class and below are, are not getting a, a very large share of that. And, and so, you know, especially that, that lowest income group, um, the, the one bracket that the TCJA did not lower rates on is the bracket for income under $20,000. Um, so they really get almost nothing. They get about 2%, the, the million households in Georgia that make the least money are only going to get about 2% of all the federal tax cuts. So this would vary, an EITC would very effectively target those folks. For the, the second rate cut, the bottom million Georgian earners would get 0.4% of the $550 million. The second million earners would get 3% of that $550 million. And then the third, the middle 20% of Georgia earners would only get 7% of that $550 million. So altogether, 10%, you know, $55 million um, would go to them through a tax cut to the top rate. Um, and it would cost the state $550 million. But you could give them a tax cut three of, of three times that for $130 million. So, you know, there are a lot of options available to the state. And by the way, you know, now only 14% of Georgians are itemizing because of these changes. So 86% of people are taking the standard deduction. And the average income of those who are itemizing is, we estimate it, at $240,000 a year. So there are a lot of matching tax breaks that, that we're still offering that cost the state a, a really significant amount of money. Um, and that's why if, if you look at any study that looks at state and local taxes, you find that the lowest income people in Georgia pay the highest share of their income in state and local taxes. And so, you know, we also look at some of the economic effects of TCJA. And obviously, um, I, I don't know if you all are talking about it on your show, but, but there are a lot of fears about, about recessions out there, you know, and, and 
we, we've obviously seen some signs of that, but we include some economic analysis um, and the Congressional Research Service did, did an analysis of the first year and concluded that um, the, the benefits were, were very low, um, if any. And, and so part of that may be because most people are getting a very small share um, and, and the largest share is going to the, the smallest share of earners. Um, and so, you know, just just one way to understand this is the, the less income you make, the, the likelier you are to get a proportionally smaller share of the benefits of these tax cuts. Um, and, and there are other things that the state can do. Uh, but it's also worth noting that state taxes in Georgia already rank 48th in America. So they're already close to the lowest that they can be for the state government to operate at a pre-recession level um, of services. I think that's a good place to close on. But before I let you go, um, your paper on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Jobs Act it's its pretty extensive. I, I think it's a pretty good beach read. And GBPI does a lot of this kind of work. Um, in my view, GBPI's work is some of the most detailed and accessible work on the state's budget out there. So if folks want to learn more about your work, how can they do that? Yeah, yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, you can you can check out our website at gbp, gbpi.org. Uh, you can follow us at, at GA Budget, um, or you can follow me at Danny Canso. Um, and, and, you know, we, we appreciate y'all being engaged in this issue. Um, it, it, it affects everybody. You know, we, we try to relate to um, how, how these issues really affect people. And um, th- this is definitely some pretty big change for the state. So um, we're, we're excited to be able to share it with people um, and to present, you know, really kind of nonpartisan lens for people to look at this stuff through um, and, and decide you know, what's in their best interest and, and, you know, some of the opportunities that are available to the state um, that, that can really grow Georgia um, and, and make us the state that, that everyone wants us to be. Danny Canto is a tax and fiscal policy analyst at the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. Danny, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks a lot, Kyle. All right. So thanks to Danny for joining the podcast. One more conversation to wrap up the show today. Here I am with Wes Wolf from the Brunswick News to talk about the disposal of coal ash and Georgia Power's plan that has alarmed some environmentalists. All right. So joining the podcast today is Wes Wolf, a reporter focused on the courts, the environment and state politics for the Brunswick News. Wes, welcome to the podcast. Um, So today we're talking about a proposal from Georgia Power to close 29 coal ash ponds and concerns raised by environmentalists over this proposal. But let's just start at the beginning here because this is actually something that I had never thought about or had never even occurred to me before seeing some of your reporting. What is coal ash? I mean, it's uh, it's what you get when you burn coal. <laughs> it's it's that's the the real basic. I mean, there's different bits of it. It's 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 like not one um, uh, homogeneous uh, mixture, but in general, it's just the residue that happens after a cold fired energy production, and that's like, and it includes a bunch of uh, funky stuff like uh, arsenic and boron and lead, mercury. And um, and you don't want that sort of thing getting into your water, uh, which has kind of been a little bit of the problem because, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, – we started coal-fired power plants a long time before we had a lot of environmental regulations. So uh, these plants and um, their leftovers – they weren't exactly uh, planned out in the best fashion. And now we're kind of having to deal with it on the back end. Yeah. So part of what is at issue here is how this coal ash is going to be disposed of. And and this is part of Georgia Power's proposal here. What are some of the different ways that you can dispose of coal ash? and, And why are there some environmentalists who are concerned about the way in which Georgia Power has proposed to dispose of it? Well, there's all kinds of things you can do with it. I think um, there's been a decent amount of talk in, in reuse, um, you know, using it in some sort of like a, a concrete type thing and, and and other forms in which it's doing something other than sitting in the ground. Uh, what's worrisome is when it's sitting in uh, unlined pits or, or clay-lined pits in which water can get in and out. 
and uh, when water can get through, water can carry things with it, and, and that's where the real worry comes. And uh, and that's kind of the the issue with some of these um, pits is that uh, they're not aligned, and um, and while and and that's where the controversy comes in. Georgia Power says they have all these monitoring wells and and um, ways to uh, 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 and, and oversight of these sites, but um, there's a you know a, a decent amount of argument about um, whether those sites are safe or not. Yeah. So specifically, some of what I saw um, in some of the other reporting on this was some concerns raised by the Southern Environmental Law Center getting at this issue of whether pits are lined or, or how it's disposed of. How um, does Georgia Power respond to critics? of their proposal to dispose of this coal ash? They say they're doing things not only at the regulatory level, but higher than the regulatory level. They say they're being as safe as, as entirely as possible, but, but the, and, and you want to believe them. <laughs> uh, the problem is, especially in Georgia, there's not, there's not a lot of independent oversight. I mean, like, for instance, uh, for Plant McManus here in Glen County that's been shut down and the coal pit's been excavated, to get uh, state regulators on the site, they have to go with Georgia Power personnel, I mean, because it's private property. There's, it seems to me that, that, there, that there's so much cooperation and so much notice that you wouldn't really know if something went wrong ahead of time. So it, it's kind of like you have to trust what Georgia Power is doing because you don't really have a, a, an alternative. And that's kind of where these environmental organizations are. They're you know, trying to deal with the fact that, you know, that, um, you know, what they, what they, see is is you know kind of um going counter to what georgia power is saying but it's really hard to get a, uh, an independent analysis between the two because that's not the way our, our regulations are set up mm-hmm. and in fact regulation has of this issue has changed recently correct as as far as i'm aware the state has some new regulatory authority over coal ash and its disposal where the federal government used to regulate it before. Um, when did that change? And, and do you have any uh, insight from your reporting on how that change and who is regulating this might change either the quality of the regulation or, or kind of some of the outcomes here? Well, we didn't really have a national coal ash regulation until 2015, um, if you can believe that. And even then, it wasn't categorized as hazardous waste, which is a whole other problem. Um, and if you allow me to, to go down this bit of a, a sidetrack, it's, I mean, coal ash is not considered hazardous waste, not by the federal government, not by the state. And so like, and, and when it goes in, let's say like a municipal, uh, landfill, there's, uh, regulations on how much can be charged. Coal ash is charged at a less amount than your average kitchen garbage. So it costs less to put coal ash in a municipal landfill than it does garbage out of your own kitchen. It's kind of bananas. And uh, the, the Senator Legan from down here, he tried to um, put forth legislation during the last uh, legislative session that would have uh, equaled that out, if I recall correctly, and it got killed. Like, Every coal ash bill in the legislature gets killed, even the most minor bits, which, you know, is kind of problematic with this regulation going to a state, going to the state level in Georgia, because what Georgia Power wants, Georgia Power gets, basically. And there's not a lot of pushback from the legislature at all, because any time a legislator tries to do like the smallest thing, the bill dies in committee. I mean, I've seen that session after session with our local legislators and what they've tried to do is very minor coal ash regulations and it just <laughs> every year they get uh you know bound up in committee so and that's what and, and that's kind of a, a worry here is that you know there there is this finally a federal after after the the big uh mess in uh east tennessee with um in 2008 with the kind of with the coal ash disaster there, and and finally there's a federal 
uh, rule put in in 2015, you know, the, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a hope for some sort of real regulatory framework. But now, with that going to the states, you know, it, it, it's you're kind of like left with the you know, whatever energy power in the state. You know, they're going to push their weight around, and I think that's going to be what happens with Georgia Power and this regulatory framework if Georgia is allowed to do its own permitting. Mm-hmm. So there was a hearing. So despite this uh, regulation moving from the federal to state governments, the federal EPA hosted a hearing in Atlanta. What happened at that hearing? Yeah, I mean, it's a process. I mean, before Georgia can take over um, the permitting, you know, it has to go through a process. And part of that's public hearings. And a lot of people got up and a lot of people voiced their displeasure. But I don't think that'll really make an impact um, because uh, it appears that the state wants this. It appears that Georgia Power wants this. It appears the Trump administration wants this. I don't really see how it's stopping. So, I mean, for instance, and I mean, uh, in a sort of similar but not exactly type situation, I mean, down here we have the Terry Creek outfall, which is um, uh it's not on the the national priorities list that's regulated like a Superfund site. And so there's been a um, proposed agreement between the the Hercules, the company that polluted the site, and the federal government. And uh, what they agreed to out of like 10 possible choices was the least expensive option. And it left and it leaves a lot of contaminated soil, and a lot of people got upset about that. And the the, the county government issued a resolution against the consent agreement. The city government issued a resolution against it. Every elected official that I know of in Glen County is against it. Um, Buddy Carter came out against it, <laughs> and uh, and there's just like oodles and oodles of public comments against it, um, to the point to where the DOJ and and uh, in documents filed with the federal court said, you know, we have to deal with all these public comments, blah, blah, blah. We can't submit our, the, the paperwork by this deadline. And they put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, they submitted the paperwork saying, you know what? We think our original plan is just fine, thanks. And they're planning on going, you know, with, with the plan that they decided, you know, despite all of the comments against it and despite the entirety of the, the local government being against it. And that's because they can. <laughs> it's because that's the way the rules are set up, and I and I think that's going to be the way it is with um, this uh, coash regulation. So, what comes next on this issue? I know it sounds like you're a little bit pessimistic about the concerns of environmentalists weighing heavily on on how Georgia Power implements this plan. But are there other opportunities for the public to give comment or or to interact with some of the other bodies that? have regulatory over regulatory authority over Georgia power, like the public service commission or the state legislature? Well, uh, I mean, the, I, I saw that EPA is going to be receiving public comments through the end of the month. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 and I, I don't believe that, you know, that the comments will, will go far, but I mean, it's can't hurt. You know, the the only thing that, that can possibly counter um, Georgia Power's immense influence at the state legislature or people's or are those legislators' constituents, you know, having their, their voices heard. So if, you know, if the utility is doing something that you don't like, you know, let your legislator know about it. And maybe some of these uh, bills that have been getting bottled up in committee may have a little bit more life next time. All right. Um, well, uh, for our listeners, Wes's reporting down in Brunswick is, is worth keeping an eye on. He's focused on um, court issues in the state, on state government, um, on environmental issues. Is there anything else on your beat right now that our listeners should keep an eye out for? Well, uh, you know, we have a, a, a decent amount of coast and, and a lot of it matters a lot um for instance uh we have if you're interested in in good seafood we have uh, uh red snapper regulations are coming up for discussion again um 
you know, people really don't have any idea how both how uh, complex and controversial um, fishery regulations are. It's kind of insane, um, especially when it comes to, to really popular fish like red snapper. We ha- we've had a couple many seasons this year, and um, and I'll be sitting in on a uh, on a, a webinar tomorrow evening about um, possible changes in, in the in the red snapper fishery. Um, also, lawsuit regarding a, a seismic testing is um, still in the uh, federal court in Charleston. Um, that has an effect on us. It's kind of, it's not really doing anything right now, but it's sitting around. Um, I've been keeping an eye on it. There's been some action on the state level in some other states, like um, in South Carolina, people want the state agency that allowed for seismic testing within the, the three miles from the coast that the state regulates. They want them to... to um, rescind that approval. I think in North Carolina, their uh, Department of Environmental Quality has rescinded approval um, to uh, one of the companies that's trying to do seismic testing. So that's kind of a big deal. Every state on the Atlantic coast has come out against seismic testing, like all of them, (laughs) Um, which is kind of amazing considering uh, you can't get that sort of bipartisan agreement on nearly anything. Another conflict to watch is the stuff about um, the uh, uh, Clean Water Act. Uh, we have a lawsuit down here in Brunswick, of which the state is a part with uh, 10 other states. The uh, EPA wants to get rid of a, a federal regulation for ephemeral streams, and they may look at trying to remove federal protections for intermittent streams. And that doesn't matter as much for Georgia as it does out west, um, because it, if they those federal protections are taken away for those types of streams, then most of the West will have its uh, streams um, not having federal water protection. That can uh, mean a lot. So. All right. Well, a lot of environmental issues to keep an eye on for our listeners and and listeners be sure to check out uh west wolf's reporting down at the brunswick news down on the coast uh west thanks so much for joining the podcast all right thank you all right thank you west wolf for joining the podcast we're going to wrap it there today uh, so luke and megan thank you so much for joining the show today thanks kyle thanks kyle and we'll talk to y'all next week bye that's our show for the week if you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.